Hello, this is Leslie Garfield Center, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Chris Fromm about hearsay. Before we get into our music, I wanted to say that all I wanted to do was get REO Speedwagon's song, heard it from a friend who, well, I won't sing too much, and I couldn't get the license, so here's our traditional music. In this episode, I speak with Chris Fromm, the Executive Director of Institutional and Supplemental Programs at Kaplan Barview and an evidence lecturer. Chris knows his stuff, and it's a good thing because I know how hard evidence is. In fact, I will admit publicly that it was my lowest grade in law school. I just didn't get it, but I get it now. After listening to what he has to say, I feel like I truly understand evidence. Before we get started, once again, a request that you like us on the social media platforms and you rate us and review us on the podcast platforms. They make a huge difference. They keep me going, they help me shape the episodes, and they generally make this that much more fun for me to do for you. So if you could take a moment and give me a little shout out, I would so appreciate it. If you're listening to Lord of Fact, chances are at some point you'll be taking the bar exam. Well, getting ready for the bar exam means you'll need to choose the study program that's right for you. Kaplan Bar Review will get you ready to take on test day with confidence by offering $100 off live and on-demand bar review with offer code LESLIE100. Visit www.kaplanbarreview.com today to sign up. Okay, here's my discussion with Chris Fromm on Hearsay. All right, so thank you so much for joining me. I am thrilled because you really are one of the premier evidence aficionados, if that's a fair word to use. Um, you lecture all across the country on evidence and teach as well. And so... Um, I wanted to talk to you today about hearsay. I took evidence. I did not do well at evidence at all. And I don't remember much about hearsay other than um, offered to prove the truth of a matter asserted. So what is hearsay? So you are in the same boat then that most students are, right? That most bar takers are, that most lawyers are. And not only do I teach hearsay or teach evidence, but I also judge a lot of trial competitions. And that whole truth of the matter asserted thing is like what we have memorized. It's just what we kind of spit out, but we don't really understand it, I think, right? right. So <clears throat> it's not just what is hearsay, but more importantly, what isn't hearsay? I think distinguishing those things that are hearsay from those things that aren't is really important, especially if your law school professor gives you some kind of fact pattern where you're analyzing hearsay, but it's not a hearsay issue. You're only going to get points for the things that are relevant, right? So it's mm -hmm. really of, of timing. Um, well, so, I, so let me let me just say, relevant, no pun intended, but let right. me just say, um, that's, that's exactly right. So I'm a student, and I get an exam, and I'm an evidence. I'm going to get a hearsay question. I just am, right? So yep. when I read that fact pattern, um, what am I looking for? Ah, well, we're going to look at three specific rules, 801, 803, and 804. That's really it, right? They define what hearsay is and what it's not, and then they give us some exceptions that allow otherwise inadmissible hearsay into the record. So what is it? The first thing we, we have is at this definition section, right, which really is going to drive a student's analysis because step number one is a statement. The question is, what is a statement? And, and I kind of throw this out there hypothetically, what is a statement, right? If I say it's cloudy out, that's clearly a statement, right? Mm -hmm. Or if I write, this is Chris Fromm and this is my last will and testament, that's a statement because I'm intending an oral or written assertion, right? But then a statement can also be nonverbal conduct, 
So nonverbal conduct. Um, <clears throat> I'm looking at you right now. You don't know what's behind you. And I say to you, do you know what's over your right shoulder? And you're like, you shrug your shoulders, right? You're like, right. did you say anything? No. Did you write anything? No. But were you intending communication by shrugging your shoulders? Yeah. You were telling me you don't know. The same thing as if, go ahead. Okay. So I was going to say, so, so a communication is basically making a statement. It can be verbal or it can be nonverbal. I have a question. I'm, I'm actually um, working on a scholarship dealing with emojis. So can an emoji be hearsay? Absolutely. I, like I think of the, I think of the one with the, with the heart, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the eyeballs as the hearts. Like I'm, I'm sending that to my wife with a, an expression of love. Right. I'm saying, I can't wait to see you tonight with that love thing there. Right. Like, like I'm absolutely intending communication, okay. but, if, if as I'm talking to you, and even though I'm in San Francisco, I'm an East Coast guy, so I talk with my hands, right? <laughs> yes. I, I, this, I, is, this is audio, but I can tell you that, yes, you do. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I scratch my head or something. I'm scratching my head because it itches, right? I'm not trying to say, hmm, I'm curious. You know, like that emoji where the guy's like scratching his head. Yes. Thing. I'm not sure I'm thinking about it, right? So absolutely emojis are intended as uh, communication. So they would be a statement, right? So that's really step number one. Okay. Uh, but check this out. Let's say that I, and I always use myself in hypos because you never wanna, you know, put somebody else kind of on the spot. So I'm arrested for drunk driving, right? I'm pulled over, I, I do the, uh, the walk and turn, I can't touch my nose properly, I'm arrested. I'm put in the, you know, the proverbial drunk tank, okay? Mm -hmm. And there's a videotape that, that is on the drunk tank that's kind of showing my mannerisms in there. And let's say that I'm kind of walking around and I'm stumbling a little bit and I have a hard time kind of uh, sitting and things like that. I'm not intending communication there, am I? Like, I'm not saying, look at me, I'm drunk. No. But that conduct is nonverbal. But that's not a statement because even though I'm making it, I'm not intending to communicate. How, so there isn't a statement, so there's no hearsay problem. But isn't that beautiful evidence that could be used against me at trial to show that I was drunk? So, you know, and so actually, to your point, I'm taking a step back because yeah. statements generally, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an evidence person, but statements generally are admissible, but hearsay is not. And so the role, is that, an, I mean, unless it meets one of the exceptions. Right. Is that so fair to a, say? So hearsay yeah. is a statement. And hearsay, so Federal Rule 802, to kind of jump ahead, says that hearsay is inadmissible unless it falls into an exception. Correct. So hearsay is statements and generally hearsay is inadmissible. And I, I think you bring up a good question, which is kind of like, why? Why is hearsay inadmissible? Because this jury doesn't have an opportunity to hear it firsthand. This jury doesn't have an opportunity for me always to cross-examine the person who said it. So it's heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who, you know, the, the, the what's that uh, broken phone line kind of thing, right? Yeah. Where you know, you tell one person something and then you pass it through eight people. By the time it comes out the other end, it's a completely different statement. So it's this, it's this lack of reliability, which really precludes hearsay from coming in. So that's really helpful. And that makes it really clear is that if you want to introduce evidence of a statement made that the law basically says, we want you to be, we want 
the defense um, or, or even the plaintiff or whoever if it's a civil case to be able to cross-examine the person who made that statement. And if you're introducing evidence of a statement made by someone who's not in court, right, you introduce it through someone else who's saying, I heard someone say this statement, correct? And that right. I heard, okay, is the hearsay, but you want to correct me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is fine. This is good. And, and see, you saw some nonverbal communication because I was moving my hands in like a stop. That's right. Um, we always think, oh, well, you don't have an opportunity to cross the declarant. So then people automatically think, well, if that out-of-court declarant is available today for cross-examination, then that clears up the hearsay problem. But you know what? It doesn't. Because don't just think it's a problem with the lack of cross-examination. Think of it as two words, conscious fabrication. Because that out-of-court declarant knows in three months that they're going to be in court and subject to cross-examination. And I think about things like this. Remember um, whenever um, Brett Kavanaugh was being uh, cross-examined in front of Congress, right, for his confirmation mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court. Do you think that there wasn't extensive prep for what kinds of questions he was going to get? Are you going to legislate from the bench? And let's talk about your high school history and what do these things mean in your calendar? He was prepped for all of those answers. Now, I think some answers came out better than others, but nonetheless, there's conscious fabrication there, meaning even though we have the opportunity to to cross-examine that person. The problem is they've been able to think for months about how to best craft and narrate that answer. That's the problem with hearsay because people have an ax to grind or a bend or they have some rationale for saying something slightly different today than when it actually happened. That's really helpful. So that gives this great theoretical understanding, which I, I have to say, is so important for students because um, you, it's, it's important not just to learn what I call um, index card learning, which is you learn the law. You need to really understand the purpose of the law in order to do well in law school. And I think that, that, that you really kind of explained it well. All right, so let's go back to proving it. I kind of took us on a windy path and let's get back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think to myself, I'm like, stop for a second. Why is this important? Because if there's no statement, then there's no hearsay problem. So your analysis really becomes truncated on whatever that piece of evidence is, right? Mm -hmm. And don't forget that the rule actually says a person, right? That means that statements are only by humans. So a dog barking or the, the, the canine, right, that alerts with his nose on the trunk of the car, mm -hmm. That's not a hearsay issue that you need to address. Or church bells chiming. That's not a hearsay issue because that's not a statement. And here's the best one that as a, as a you know, professor I would love to test. The radar gun used to pull you over for speeding, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's hearsay. No, because a statement is made by a human, not by mm -hmm. a machine, not by an animal. So you might have some other way to preclude that evidence, right? But you can't say that it's hearsay and therefore it's inadmissible because it's not a statement. So step one, statement. Yeah? Yep, got it. Excellent. Step two, declarant. Okay. Where students get confused again as well because the declarant is the person who made the statement. It's not necessarily the witness on the stand because think about this. If I come into your house and you're like, boy, Chris, you look like a drowned rat, 
right? Because mm-hmm. I am soaking. My hair is wet. My clothes are wet. I'm shivering and cold. There's no hearsay problem there because you're seeing me, right? It's hearsay, you solve, right? It's a problem (laughs) with words, not with what you actually observed. But if I tell you, oh yeah, it's been raining since three o'clock, you don't know it's been raining since three o'clock because you didn't experience it. So the question becomes, if we wanna use my statement later on at trial, it's been raining since three o'clock, who's the declarant? I am. I'm the one who said it. Right. You could be the witness at trial repeating what you heard me say. But if we're bringing that in for its truth, that's hearsay. I, it's hearsay, not hearsaw. That's like brilliant. I love that. Feel free to use that one. Sure. I'm going to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So we have a person who is the declarant. Mm-hmm. What's next? Okay. Now, and, and really... Before we define hearsay, if somebody's following along in Federal Rule 801, there are under 801D, there are these groups of things called not hearsay. These are exclusions or exemptions that are specifically called out as being admissible, but are not hearsay. And there's really four of them. You have a prior statement by a witness, whether it be consistent or inconsistent with today's testimony. You have a prior identification uh, by a witness, and then you have what's called a statement by a party opponent. These four types of statements are admissible and are not hearsay, meaning they are specifically provided for as being admissible outside of the hearsay rules. Okay. And I will swing back to why that's relevant in an analysis, I think, once we get into hearsay a little bit more. But I hit D to kind of say there are these group of things that are specifically not hearsay. They are exclusions or exemptions. Then we kind of come back to C, which is the definition of hearsay. And absolutely, you need to have this kind of memorized, right? But you need to understand it. So hearsay is a statement that the declarant, so we had those kind of first two definitions we had to get out of the way, right? Right. Does not make while testifying at the current trial. The declarant does not make while testifying at the current trial or hearing. So it means that it was made at some point in the past, previously, out of court. And there's that problem we have, right? That conscious fabrication. Mm -hmm. And the second part is a party offers it into evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Okay. Now, remember, 802 says, and and 802 isn't really a rule of consequence, but absolutely a rule of importance because it says hearsay is not admissible unless the rules provide otherwise. Meaning hearsay, because of that conscious fabrication, we don't want it in. It, it, It messes things up. I think of like... Ebola and some of these like really bad diseases, right? And when people are treating those diseases, what do you see? You see those guys in like the 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 moon suits, right? And and you see 
you go into one room and, and you're hit with air and they zip the door behind you and then they hit you again with air and you walk into another like there's this pristine condition right that we make sure that there's no outside interference well that's exactly what the courtroom is right hearsay is this outside interference that we're like yeah people lie people have motivation to not tell the truth they 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 forget things over time they kind of change their mind or their view so hearsay is problematic and therefore we don't allow it in unless there's some rationale behind it. And I always want to say the, the spirit of the rule. If hearsay doesn't come in, yet we have all these exceptions that allow it in, then clearly those exceptions have to be like truth serum, right? They have to provide us rationale for why something that otherwise shouldn't be believed should be believed. Got it. That, that's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. I love that. Good, good. So... 803 and 804 are the rules that give us hearsay exceptions. So our general rule is a hearsay doesn't come in unless it falls into an exception. Well, 803 has 23 exceptions and 804 has five. So if you put the two together, there's 28 situations, 28 exceptions where otherwise inadmissible evidence would be admissible. So you're like, wow, that's a lot of exceptions, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and they're all very specific. And, you know, I think most professors probably cover half. Like, there's no way you can get through all of them. And you really need to set up kind of what hearsay is and what it's not. But then you need to get into, okay, let's find a specific exception for this statement to, to come in. And so, so, th so those, those, sorry, so those exceptions mm -hmm. are the contaminant, going back to your analogy of Ebola, yeah. those exceptions are the contaminants that in a way, like the little molecules that the court has said, it is okay to enter this pristine universe because entering the pristine universe is going to help the judicial system in its quest for justice. Is that fair to say? Yes. Um, and, and to stick with that analogy, it's like some Mars doesn't have Ebola, okay? Let's right. agree, Mars does not have Ebola, right? Okay. So someone from Mars comes down and is in that operating room. Well, he's Ebola free. Like there's no reason to think that he's got the infection that's gonna cause any problems, right? So it's really like a, a free pass. Like, wait a minute, if, if hearsay, if all that stuff that was said outside of court is contaminated, why in the world should we open up, right? The, the courtroom and allow this person or this statement in. There's gotta be some truth serum. There's gotta be something believable about it. And the best example I can give you is there's a hearsay exception called dying declaration, right. which as you think you are going to meet your maker, as you think you are about to die, you say something. We say that that is pristine, that that is clean, that that is free from conscious fabrication. Why? Because if any time in your life you are going to speak the truth, it's on your deathbed. That's why we always hear this phrase, right? Deathbed confession. Like right. we're not going to know who killed JFK until somebody on their deathbed admits to doing it kind of thing, right? right. It's that if there's one time in my life I'm going to say something that's truthful, that's believable, that's honest, it's consequence free because I'm now going to go and, and die, right? So we kind of believe that. So that's the thing. It, it is still hearsay, yeah. but it's consequence free hearsay. And so yeah. the court is saying we're going to allow in consequence free hearsay because it's relevant and necessary to help get to justice. And it's believable. And it's right? believable. Yes, That's got it. Thing, right? if, if, if I'm the judge uh -huh, yes. about hearsay, I'm like, eh, why should I let you in? 
why should this jury believe you? Are you just going to come in here and create doubt? Are you just going to come in here and, and dirty up the situation? Or are you going to give us some real believable testimony? If the judge buys that, and remember, the judge is the one who makes this determination, right? The jury simply hears what the judge allows in or the judge doesn't. So the judge makes that determination. Got it. All right. Yeah. So this is this. I, I, I get it. I picture it. I visualize it. Um, so what do we do with all these exceptions? Okay. But How do we deal with them. Before we get there, I think we still got to hit that truth of the matter assertive part. Okay. Right? Got it. Yep. Is, and the best way to think about it is this is the truth of what the statement is asserting relevant to the particular case? Is the truth of what the statement is asserting relevant to the particular case? Asserting means to state a fact confidently. I assert that I was born October 23rd, 1973. I'm stating a fact confidently. The truth of what the statement is asserting. And let me give you three really good examples to kind of bring this home. Again, we're looking at hearsay versus what's not hearsay with right. this truth of the matter asserted. I went to Widener Law School, um, now Delaware Law School in Wilmington, right? Mm -hmm. And my first five years out, I was a prosecutor in Philadelphia. So I was dealing with hearsay all the time, right? And obviously as a prosecutor, as a public servant, I'm not making a lot of money, but of course the school is asking me for money. And I say, hey guys, I can't really pull out the checkbook, but what I can give you, I think is even more valuable. I can come and I can judge moot court competitions or I can help out with a traveling trial team. And you know, obviously I have the relevant experience. I'm close, that would be good, something I like, great. So I'm sitting there listening to these you know, three talking about an every, everyday consequence like hearsay and somebody says objection hearsay and the proponent right the person offering the evidence I look at them and I say okay your opponent just objected to hearsay the witness is giving us some statement that appears that was made out of court what's your response what's your rationale for bringing it in and they freeze I don't know why, because like you should expect certain objections, right? But nonetheless, you're like called on the carpet, right? This is, this is the proverbial thinking on your feet. You know, you're being thrown to the fire. Things as a prosecutor or a new uh, public defender, you have to do all the time. And they always say the same thing. Uh, uh, Your, Your Honor, I'm not offering it for the truth of the matter asserted. Oh, okay, fine. Then continue. And they're like, whew. You know, and there I am intending conduct, right? I'm kind of wiping my brow. Right. Like, <laughs> so the trial goes on, that testimony comes in. And then as they're ready for their closing arguments, I will always say this. Now, counsel, remember on these three occasions where there was a hearsay objection and you said you're not using it for the truth of the matter asserted? I allowed it in for that limited purpose. So if you want to argue those things as being fact to the jury, you can't because you didn't show me a rationale for bringing it in for its truth. And then they're like, oh my gosh, my case is going to fall apart now because they should have given me a hearsay exception that allows that in for its truth, right? Yes. And I think it's really important to think about this. I, I say these words all the time without thinking about whether my audience knows them or not. So I always kind of take a step back and say, what's the difference between evidence that's offered for its truth and evidence that's offered for something less than its truth, right? And the words we use in evidence are substantive use, 
versus limited use. Substantive use versus limited use. Well, if it only has a limited use, the opposite of that would be unlimited, right? Substantive use is unlimited. I am a big basketball fan, but it's really expensive to go to games here. You know, the Golden State Warriors are hot, right? Mm -hmm. It's really expensive to go to a game here. But I have the benefit of my wife used to um, be in the general counsel's office. She was uh, assistant general counsel for Virgin Airlines. Virgin Airlines has a pep rally team, right? That the guy who's in charge of the pep rally team is also the announcer for the Golden State Warriors. Wow. Last year, she got my son and I all access passes for game three of the championship, right? So we were allowed to go at noon. The game didn't start till like six o'clock, right? We got in at noon. We could go anywhere. We were down on the court watching Steph Curry and Draymond Green shoot around, right? We got to go into this like huge buffet line. Like we could go anywhere, literally anywhere we wanted, right? That's substantive use. There's no limit to what we could do. Right. But this year, um, I will go to a game down in Los Angeles, right? And when I go there, I already bought my tickets. And they're kind of nosebleed sections, right? Because they're really expensive. The Lakers are hot right now because LeBron is there. And she doesn't know anybody down there, right? So I have to be among the, you know, the, the, um, the mortals again, right? <laughs> um, but hey, I'm still getting into the game, right? I'm still going to watch it. It's still better than sitting at home listening to it on the radio or something, right? But, but now my access is limited, right? So if you think of substantive use as unlimited, it means that the jury can use that evidence for any purpose they want, including finding the defendant guilty or not guilty, including giving the plaintiff a verdict or not. But if it's only limited use, then the judge gives the jury a limiting instruction. The judge says, hey, you heard this. You can only use it for this limited purpose. So as, a, as a, an attorney, your goal is to get in hear evidence through a hearsay exception, because if it's through a hearsay exception, it's going to be able to be considered in a variety of ways. So, even, so I think what you're saying is hearsay evidence can come in as hearsay for limited purposes in certain situations, right? Yes. That's the limited use that you're talking about, correct? Absolutely. So hearsay could come in through an exception, unlimited. Right. No, but I'm saying that it can still come in not through an exception, but if it comes in not through an exception, it's no longer unlimited and you could be handcuffed into the way the jury can consider it. Beautiful. So if you're good, sorry. Yep. And that leads us into, boy, there's so much nonverbal communication happening. I love it. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm looking at you, the hands are going. Um, Two New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you think about these exceptions, right? I, I, I talked about the, the, the dying declaration. So, so let me actually explain that one, right? You are walking by a house and you hear bang, 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 three gunshots. And you hear somebody inside yell out, Chris Fromm, why did you have to shoot me over a $5 debt? And then the next day, cops knock on your door and say, hey, did you happen to be in the vicinity of this house last night? Why, yes, I did. And did you hear anything? Well, yeah, I heard some gunshots. Not a hearsay problem because that's not made by a human, right? There's no intended communication. Did you hear anything else? Why, yeah, I heard somebody, that being the declarant, 
scream out, Chris Fromm, why did you have to shoot me? Well, Chris Fromm is on the loose. Chris Fromm certainly ain't talking about what happened, and there are no eyewitnesses. So the prosecution needs you to come in and testify to basically prove that Chris Fromm was the shooter. Did you see the shooting? No. But you heard what would arguably be a dying declaration. It's an out-of-court statement. Does the prosecution need it for its truth? Absolutely. They don't need to just prove that it was said. They need to prove the truth that Chris Fromm was the shooter. So that's hearsay, but we have an exception that allows it in. So there's no handcuff there, right? There it comes in substantively for its truth to prove that Chris Fromm was the shooter. Great. Okay, I'm just taking a time out. First yeah. of all, this is fat. We, we need our own show. This is like <laughs> fabulous. Good. Here's my question. So we're at 30 minutes right now. We have yeah. two options. Op- and plus, you have to take your kid to school at seven o'clock anyway, right? No, 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 no. Okay. no. Get up at seven. We're fine. Oh, oh okay. All right, well, we have two options. We can continue on if you think we can wrap it up in 10 minutes, or we can kind of say, I can say to you, all right, it seems like the um, exceptions are overwhelming. Let's move that to a second podcast and you can summarize everything else and then we can, I can break it up into two podcasts. What do you think is the best way to do all this? So I wanted to give you one more, um, one more really good example, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then say, you know, the, the exceptions are the exceptions, right? You read them, you, you, you find one that fits and, and, and there you go, right? It's kind of uh-huh. like you walk in and you need a life jacket and they come in small, medium, and large. And you okay. kind of look at you and you put it on and, and there you go. I think it's understanding the hearsay and what isn't hearsay that was kind of our, our purpose here. We could certainly have a follow-up where we walk through nine or 10. No, 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 I don't, I, we may not need to. I think, so I think that's great. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Um, and then after those two examples, I actually have a quick little thing that would say, hey, if I was attacking a hearsay problem on, yes, yes. here's how I'd roll through it. That was that lit. And that's actually what I was gonna ask you finally. Okay, so perfect. So let's get back into it. Um, so you just, do your other exception. I forgot where we left off, but okay. Yep. I'm good. Um, hold on. Okay. Okay. So, so uh, uh, any other examples? Yeah. Think about this. Let's say that I take my son to Trader Joe's, right? He's six years old. He loves to go along with me. It's a learning situation. Like it's fun. And I'm pushing him through the aisle and he says, oh, dad, uh, there's watermelon. You know, I'd, I'd like to get a watermelon. I say, okay, son. So he's in the cart, right? I leave the cart there. I literally turn my back for, you know, three seconds to pick, you know, the, the right watermelon. And as I turn back around to put it into the cart, he's gone. And, you know, my heart is racing. I'm like, oh my God, where's my son? And some guy standing there says, hey, see that guy running toward the door? He just took your kid. So, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to go running toward that guy walking out the door, right? He just kidnapped my son. So I tackle this guy, all five foot six of me, 145 pounds. I tackle this guy. I flip him over. He doesn't have my kid. Uh Uh-oh. So what do I do? I go back to the guy standing by my cart and I'm like, dude, he didn't have my kid. Like, what's the deal? And he pulls my son from like around one of those end caps and goes, here he is. Ha ha. Like, what a sick joke, right? Mm-hmm. No harm, no foul? No, because that dude lying there in the doorway is now going to sue me, or worse yet, he's going to call the cops on me, right? And I'm going to be arrested for like an assault or a battery. 
So I say to you, how do you defend me? How do you defend me in that assault or that battery? What do you do? Like clearly I'm on videotape tackling that dude. What do you do? How do you defend me? Well, um, I, <laughs> I want to say that you took off, that you had this intent to um, stop him. I, I basically, I want to say that this was self-defense and I want to use your response to your kid missing as self-defense. Okay. okay. So, so you're seeing maybe there's, a, there's an issue with a statement here, right? Like mm -hmm. I need to really recap for the jury what happened, but think about assault and battery. Think about crimes, right? Go back to 1L or, or you're in 1L. Think about crimes. Think about the defenses. A reasonable mistake is allowed. A reason, because it's not really self-defense because I, I should have punched a guy beside my cart for lying, right? But yeah. rather, I tackled some complete innocent. So self-defense is a defense, but in that situation, I don't think I can use it. But don't I have the defense of being reasonable? Yes. So how do I prove that I was reasonable? How do I prove that anybody in that jury would have done the same thing that I just did? You show your reaction. I show my reaction. So I need that guy's statement, right? Well, ladies and gentlemen, this guy beside my cart said, oh, objection, hearsay. Well, am I bringing that in for its truth? No, because what that guy said, he's got your kid, isn't even true. But if all I need to show is that there's a reasonable mistake, it doesn't matter if it was true or not, because we're using it for the limited purpose of the effect on the listener. Therefore, there's no hearsay problem. I'm not using his words, Your Honor, to prove something. Rather, I'm using his words to show that limited effect of I was reasonable in what I did. So even though I'm bringing in an out-of-court statement, is it for the truth of the matter asserted? No. It's for the limited purpose of showing effect on the listener. So there's a situation, unlike the dying declaration, where we needed it for its truth. Here, you don't need it for its truth. Now, it's always at trial going to draw a hearsay objection. But the problem is that it's not a hearsay situation. So if I was testing my students on that, I would want them to go down the rabbit hole trying to figure out how to bring it in for its truth, but I'm not offering it for its truth. I'm using it for that limited purpose of the effect on the listener. So that, I'm sorry. go ahead. No, that's super important. And actually, when I was in law school, that was the problem that I had in understanding the truth of the matter asserted. So if some guy is watching you and says, hey, that man has your kid, if mm -hmm. you wanted to prove that the man had your kid, right, then it may be that you're using the statement to prove the man had your kid. But you're using that evidence to prove not that the man had your kid, but that that was evidence that you heard to inspire you to run over and deck this guy. Exactly. And so you're, reasonable. Yes. So yep. that you acted reasonably. So you are using it to prove your reaction. No one is suing you for your reaction. The court, you are not, it's not a crime for your reaction. So we're using this evidence. It's actually as a defense, right? My reaction is a defense to the crime charge. Reaction is to defense, right. So we're using it as circumstantial evidence. Is that right, circumstantial? Yeah. Okay. We, we use it. I know this. Oh, I got <laughs> to see an evidence. Thanks for editing. We're using, we're using this as circumstantial evidence that the jury can use as one other, one, one little thing to add up 
to deciding whether you have a defense. Absolutely. And yeah. so if I were a student taking evidence today and I saw this statement, I would have to say, what is the statement and what is it being used for? Is it being used for the goal of proving guilt or innocence or used for the goal of proving plaintiff versus defendant in a civil case? Then it's being used for the truth of the matter asserted. But if it's being used as circumstantial evidence that the jury can include in a basket of evidence to reach its conclusion, then it's not being proved for the truth of the matter asserted. And then it can come in under this hearsay exception. Am I right? Perfect up until that last part, because if okay. you're bringing it in under an exception, right. then it comes in for any purpose, right? Because exceptions are substantive use. Wait, I'm raising my hand. I, I, I know where I made my mistake. Where I made my mistake is if it's, being, if it's being introduced not for the truth of the matter asserted, it's not hearsay at all. Beautiful. Beautiful. What an aha moment. What a light bulb, right? I, 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 Oprah would be proud. <laughs> I have my Oprah aha moment. I understand. Let, let's say you were going to ask this on an exam. How might it come out? Okay. If I were going to test this on an exam, I wouldn't test just hearsay, right? I would test hearsay and relevance and some other things because the student's got two or three hours to write the exam. So I need to have multiple issues, right? So you kind of fuse into or infuse these other issues. So let's say that I am missing, presumed dead. Nobody has seen me for quite some time. My wife now wants to collect my insurance proceeds, but there's no body, right? There's no casket. She can't necessarily prove that I'm dead. She didn't see me killed. Nobody saw my plane go down, right? There's no body. But the law gives us these things called presumptions, right? So obviously my wife and I are married. The, the child from that union is presumed to be ours, right? Just like if I am missing for seven years, I'm presumed to be dead. So my wife, in kind of proving that I'm dead, because obviously she's not going to get my insurance proceeds unless I am dead, right? Mm -hmm. In proving that I'm dead, she would rely on this presumption, right, that comes from Federal Rule 301 that says, yeah, you can presume that if Chris Fromm hasn't been seen for seven years, that he's dead. Good. So my wife establishes that she hasn't seen me for seven years, right? Then the insurance company calls a witness who says, I was in London two years ago and I spoke to Chris Fromm. My wife says, objection, hearsay. But here's the deal. Does it matter what that conversation was about? No, because dead people don't talk. And if somebody spoke to Chris Fromm, who cares what the conversation was? It proves that Chris Fromm was alive. So are we trying to bring in the substance, the truth of the matter asserted in the statement, in the conversation? No, just the fact that there was a conversation. So I would set that up as there's the initial issue of the presumption, which my wife would get, right? Then I would quickly move into, okay, there was a hearsay um, objection lodged. I would talk about statement. I would talk about declarant. And then I would say, okay, is it being offered for its truth? No, it doesn't matter if the conversation was about the price of tuna on the market. It doesn't matter if the conversation was about evidence. It doesn't matter if the conversation was about whether the Golden State Warriors are going to be better or not with, without Kevin Durant. It's the fact that Chris Fromm must have been alive because he was involved in a conversation. So even though we hear that oh, it's a statement that's being made out of court. Are we offering it for its truth? To prove what was in that conversation? No, just that one occurred. Because now coming back to the presumption, guess what happens to my wife's presumption? It's gone. 
She has to basically wait another, what, five years beyond this because now we've had testimony that two years ago, Chris Fromm was alive. Right. If the jury so, believes the testimony, though. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so I think there's some really good examples of like what is being offered for its truth and what it's not. And obviously, if you're bringing it in for its truth, to your point, now you have these exceptions under 803 and 804. And I've been talking about each one, 803 and 804, having exceptions. So like, why don't we just put them all into 803, right? Because the difference between those two, 803, which has 23 exceptions, it doesn't matter if your declarant is available or not. It's immaterial whether your, your mouthpiece, your declarant, is available or not. But 804 only has five exceptions. And in those exceptions, your declarant must be unavailable. Got it. Got it. Wonderful. All right. So I think I have this. I think I finally have it. X amount of years after law school. <laughs> and, it's, yeah. and I would, I would be um, doing your students uh, and your listeners a disservice if I didn't say, I'm always going to start off with why is my evidence relevant? Who wants to use it? How do they want to use it? Mm -hmm. That's really getting me to the purpose. And if I get to purpose, that automatically unleashes that thought process of, is this words truth or not? So I walk through my hearsay exceptions that allow some piece of evidence in. But I wouldn't stop there. Because if you stop there, you get a B. How do you get that A? You now want to think, okay, are there any 403 objections here, right? It's substantially more prejudicial than it is probative because that would preclude otherwise relevant admissible evidence. Or if we're in a criminal case, I'm thinking, hmm, what about the confrontation clause? I don't have an opportunity maybe to cross-examine an unavailable declarant, right? So even though we have a hearsay exception, the confrontation clause could say, sorry, this is a Sixth Amendment violation, therefore it's inadmissible. So my conclusion would be different. Or maybe this was something that was said between an attorney and a client. So there's a privilege that we keep it out. So I'm always thinking about what would allow the evidence in. And then mm -hmm. finally, are there any policy considerations that would preclude otherwise relevant admissible evidence? That's where you get the A, right? Because yeah. your conclusion could actually flip-flop from, yeah, it's relevant, yeah, it's hearsay, but we found an exception. However, there's some policy consideration that we have to look at last, right? It's the true gatekeeper to admissibility. And I think that's what separates that B from the A, those additional considerations. And I just want to emphasize that it's not even about hearsay as much as it's about law school, is that you said two things which really matter, understanding policy, and also, it's not about, you know, again, flashcard memorization in law school. It's about learning why and learning and, and applying that law to fact and not being an undergrad, um, and, which is why your hypos are so helpful, too, because it's just, and that's what, that's all law school is, right, is, is learning. It's, it's interesting. Um, I was on Twitter today. And someone tweeted and they, and to me and they said, don't you think 1L is irrelevant the way we teach it now? And I said, absolutely not, because you can memorize all the law. You can memorize the exceptions to hearsay. They're out there. Like we aren't even going over them because they're out there. But what you can't learn is how to make a legal argument. And that's what 1L teaches you. And we just use criminal law and we just use contracts as vehicles to learning how to think that way. Chris, thank you so much. This has been a total pleasure. Um, and I really, I, I learned. I learned a lot, which is always a good sign of a good podcast. I appreciate it. You got it. Thanks. 
So that's my discussion on hearsay. I hope it helped you as much as it helped me. I think I truly understand the truth of the matter asserted. Once again, a reminder that Kaplan Bar Review is offering you $100 off their live and on-demand bar review program. Just use Leslie100 as your code when you sign on at www.kaplanbarreview.com. Okay, hope you enjoyed this one. We'll see you next week on Law to Fact.